Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Today we're kicking off a new message series uh, and we're studying the book of 2 Corinthians. We studied 1 Corinthians last fall. We recorded that message and it's on our website. If you wanna go to redhillschurch.com, down at the very bottom, I think there's a search tab. You can just search for 1 Corinthians and you'll see the message series pop up. Um, But you can also, uh, up at the top, there are some links that will bring you to all of the messages that we've had at our church over the seven years we've been as a church. Uh, So go to the first Corinthian ones and you can kind of learn what Paul was uh, talking about when he wrote that first letter. So we're gonna study the second letter this fall. It's gonna take us uh, through the rest of October and all through November, so all the way up through Thanksgiving. And then uh, starting in December, we'll have our traditional Advent series like we normally do. So starting off in second Corinthians, um, a couple things that should be important and then I'll get into the background before we start reading the letter. We're gonna read through chapter one today, but a couple things that I think might be helpful for you to understand and contextualize what's happening in here uh, is that this letter that Paul is writing um, is a letter that kind of wrestles with um, loss and comfort. You'll see that really heavy in the first chapter and it continues on. He addresses other things within the letter too. He addresses um, like how Christians should live out their faith. Uh, He also uh, addresses an issue within the church uh, where people have come in behind him after he planted the church and started challenging his credentials. Uh, So he kind of responds to that towards the end of the book. Uh, But this is considered by most uh, theologians um, one of Paul's most personal letters. Uh, It's written in a tone uh, that communicates a very close relationship, even though he was with this church for a very short time. Uh, And what I mean by that was he planted this church on his second missionary journey, uh, the same uh, shortly after that he planted the church of Ephesus. And so on his third missionary journey, he was going back around and visiting these churches, and he got some kind of bad reports about for uh, the church in Corinth, and so that's what prompted the first letter, Uh, and then the second letter is kind of an emotional response to some of the things that were in the first letter, but also some some new things as well. The culture that this letter is written in uh, was the Roman culture. Obviously, that was the ruling power at the time. That was the one who was building all the roads that was, Paul was traveling on. That was the one who uh, was in charge of most of the shipping at the time, and the travel. The ones who were delivering these letters, Rome was uh, the uh, occupying force in Israel at the time, and they were kind of the ones who dictated everything. So the culture of Rome had a huge impact on this letter and all the people living in it. And that's really important because um, you can read the New Testament with American eyes and still walk away with truth. But if you choose to read the New Testament with not just your American eyes, but with first century eyes, um, there are other things that pop out that, are, that make the things that you uh, learn with American eyes even more beautiful and, and sometimes even more complex. They kind of pull back other layers. So it's important that when you read the Gospels, you understand that it was written, um, all four of them were written in the first century in a time where Rome was in charge and uh, written by people who knew Jesus or interviewed people who knew Jesus. 
Um, the same with the epistles. So Second uh, Corinthians is considered an epistle, one of the letters of Paul, and it was written in a culture of Rome. Um, and to kind of help you understand Roman culture, um, there's, there's kind of a, 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 a three uh, pronged approach to understanding most cultures that have always existed in the world. And what I mean by that is um, this kind of paradigm between um, c- cultures that are honor and shame cultures, um, cultures that are uh, guilt and innocence cultures, and cultures that are fear and power cultures, all right? The reason why this is important, I'll get to in a minute, but let me explain to you what Rome was. Rome was um, an honor and a shame culture, and what that means is your esteem or your value within the culture um, depended on you gaining or losing things like wealth or education or politics or any things that the culture viewed as valuable. So I, as a person in this culture, had esteem and value because I have gathered a lot of wealth or I have um, uh, a lot of uh, political clout uh, or my family has a long history of being educators and orators, and so when I come into town, everyone esteems me highly because I carry um, that kind of, uh, of power or value because of those things that the culture values, you understand? So those things um, elevate me as far as value and esteem, but the other side of that, the, the, the shame part of that, is that not only does do I carry value and my family carry, carries value because they're connected to me. Things that I do that the culture does not like brings shame on me and all of my associations. That's the honor-shame culture in Rome. The idea that people are constantly chasing things that give them value because it doesn't just give them value, it gives their entire family value and all of their friends value. And if you're connected to those people, then they have value. But the opposite side of that is the shame within this culture. So we're trying to gather honor and we're trying to avoid shame because if I do something that the culture does not like and I am shamed for it, not only am I shamed for it, but my entire family is shamed for it. That's the culture that Paul is writing in uh, in Rome. Now, this is a culture that's still uh, prominent today. You see it a lot in the Middle East. You see it a lot in a- areas of Asia. Um, but as I said before, other cultures, and this is just kind of a side note, um, just remember that Rome uh, is um, this honor and shame culture. The, the other areas of uh, culture in the world would be guilt and innocence and fear and power. Guilt and innocence uh, in a very simple explanation would be all about following the laws, making sure that you are not guilty, you are innocent, um, or um, justifying ways to prove to the fact that you are not, okay? That's uh, an American culture. That's what we are. Here in America, we are very rooted in this idea of guilt and innocence. We care very little about honor and shame. We care very only about did you do it or did you not do it? And if you did do it and we don't like it, did you have a reasoning that you can convince us that it's okay so we can erase your guilt into innocence? Are you kind of following me? All right, the, that's kind of like the Western mindset. That's a lot of uh, American culture. And then the other one would be fear and power. And fear and power is this culture um, that kind of uh, is really influenced by unseen powers. There's this idea that there are things that you can't see in the spirit realm that are in influencing things you can see in the physical realm. And what we have to do as a culture is kind of appease those unseen forces. 
right? And so there's a, uh, you see a lot of uh, like uh, sacrificing or uh, you, you see a lot of people like they'll go to church, but during the week, they'll also make these weird sacrifices to people um, out in the field so that, the, you know, it will actually rain on their crops. This idea that there is a power struggle and you are afraid that if you don't appease these unseen forces, then you're going to reap the benefits or um, reap the uh, um, repercussions of, of not following what they're asking you to. Um, that is very uh, popular in South American cultures and a lot of cultures in Africa. Now I bring this up, why is this important for us is because this is the kind of stuff that missionaries have to think about before they go on the mission field. Because it's one thing to just preach the gospel and say the gospel message, like look, Jesus took your sin and he forgave you and he's washed you clean. That message is the same message no matter what culture you go into, but it rings different to someone who their life is all about honor and shame. You follow? It rings different to somebody who is really only about the concept of guilt or innocence. It rings differently to somebody who's interested in appeasing the fear power struggle of unseen forces. And so this is important for us to know, probably not for your daily life, um, but the idea that um, in some way we are kind of, when we leave here, we're on the mission field. God is sending people our way that we're supposed to preach the gospel to and contextualize the gospel to, show them what Christ looks like. It should be something we're aware of in the back of our mind because the culture in America, um, while it is, also, it is currently this guilt and innocence, um, America has started flirting over the last year or two, maybe a little bit longer, um, with honor and shame. And you see this on the internet, okay? If you post, if you, you post something, hey, I just read this really good Christian book by this Christian author, you may be okay with this one book or a few things in it that this one person said, but now because of this author's association with other people, now people are starting to blast you um, and throwing shame because, oh, well, if you associate with that, then you also associate with the, these other things, and then you must not be a very good person. And since we, you go to this church, then I will also not go to that church. And if you go to that church, your pastor must be like that. So we're gonna, well, you see where this goes? Some of you are familiar with this. Our culture is starting to flirt with this idea that, that we can't come to the table, we can't have communication, we can't talk because we're starting to flirt with this idea of honor and shame um, and, and it is honorable to be in this tribe and it is shameful to be in this tribe even though both tribes are ruled by the same king. You follow? You see this in denominationalism a lot. So I bring that up because it's important for missionaries, but it's also important for us. Now back to Paul in Corinth, he planted this church, like I said, on his second missionary journey, um, and his plan was to go back and visit it um, twice. His plan was to eventually um, kind of make the circuit and go you know, over to Ephesus and then go up to Macedonia and cross over and then come down to Corinth, down in Greece, um, and then finish his trip there and then come back over to Jerusalem. So basically that was gonna be his last stop. The problem was this church was wild. They had all kinds of issues and Paul had to change his plans numerous times on top of the fact that his missionary struggles, uh, there was a lot of missionary struggles going on in Ephesus at the time and we're gonna read about that in the first chapter. So while he was in Ephesus on his third um, missionary journey, so uh, on the third round, he kind of went up to Ephesus um, first. He stayed there for like almost two years. And while he was there, he got bad reports about Corinth. And so he wrote 1 Corinthians and he sent it over with Timothy and Timothy delivered it. 
So that's how we got 1 Corinthians. Well, Timothy said, hey, things are a lot worse than you thought they were. So Paul's like, okay, it's time for us to head out. Also, things in Ephesus got really, really bad. There were, um, you can find out this is Acts 19, um, because the book of Acts, Luke wrote it, and it's kind of, um, uh, it's kind of like a historic journal of what's happening um, at the same time that Paul is writing these letters. So while Paul is in Ephesus, he wrote 1 Corinthians. He's finding out things are not good there in Corinth, but also things in Ephesus, they've been going good for two years, but all of a sudden, and things start blowing up because the silversmith is getting upset that he's losing business and so they cause a riot. So riots start happening in Ephesus to the point where Paul thinks he, he's about to lose his life. Well, he escapes and he heads up to Macedonia and while he's up in Macedonia, that's where he writes 2 Corinthians. And then eventually he comes down and he heads over to 2 Corinthians and he visits them for a little while and he comes, comes back over and he heads back, um, back to Jerusalem um, for his final one. And then his fourth one would be his, his trip to Rome. So that's kind of the background on what's happening here. Um, uh, an important side piece of information, while he's in Corinth that final time, that's where he writes the book of Romans. So while he's in Corinth the second time, he writes um, that book. So um, I bring this up because the background is important for us to understand because Paul's character is being questioned by the church, uh, his cr credentials are being questioned by the church, um, and this church struggle combined with the riot that was happening in Ephesus created an, a tremendous amount of stress and pressure on Paul, and you're gonna see that in the first chapter. So that's uh, the introduction. Let's go ahead and get into reading the Bible. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter one. We're gonna read the first seven verses and then get our first impressions. All right, 2 Corinthians 1, 1 says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, that's an old denomination, that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the word of Ahia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. All right, so let's give a couple first quick impressions and then let's dive into what he's doing here. The first one that was kind of a standout to me is the idea that in four years between the point of him planting the church and him writing this, the gospel has spread tremendously in this area, okay? Because the first letter in uh, 1 Corinthians, it was just written to the church in Corinth. But as he enter, uh, addresses this letter, it's written to the church at Corinth, but also all of the saints in this entire region. So the gospel is spreading quickly. Right? But even as um, the gospel is spreading quickly, something else is spreading and increasing, and that is the suffering. The suffering for Paul, the suffering for Paul's companions, and this church as a whole. So, so as a whole, 
We got suffering just going through the roof. Everywhere you look, it's more affliction and more suffering. Everywhere you look. But with the increase of affliction and suffering, there's an increase of something else, and that's comfort. So what Paul is doing here in his introduction, and this is what's fascinating, this is just the greeting of the letter, but Paul is already using the greeting to start equipping the church. What he's saying, even in his greeting, he's like, hey everybody, here's a couple things you start thinking about and applying in your life. Like that's the kind of guy Paul was. Like I'm gonna give you an introduction, but even in my hello shaking your hand, I'm gonna teach you something. Are you ready? Get out your notepads, because here it comes. He's teaching them, he's showing them in the introduction, just the hello, that this increase of suffering that brings an increase of comfort is a thing that God does, we should be aware of, and we should lean into, right? So what he does here is he's he's using this climate of suffering to kind of train and equip the church, and we're gonna use it to train and equip us. So what Paul is doing is he's giving us a couple teaching points, so let's break those apart. You ready? The first thing Paul is getting across is that we serve a God of comfort. Our God is a God of comfort. Now the thing about God being a God of comfort is that this word comfort, the way it's being used, excuse me, used and communicated here, it's, it's a word that doesn't just mean like, I'm gonna wrap you in a blanket, right? It's not a word that's just like, uh, I'm just gonna be there for you. It's a word that communicates, um, it, it's, it's a word that essentially means like, speaking the necessary words to a situation, to a person that changed the mood. Saying the right thing to a person that uplifts them and changes their entire mood, but doesn't just change their mood, it also changes the entire way they're looking at the situation and helps them get equipped to, to face different situations, or uh, face future situations differently. All of that is wrapped up in that one word. Right, so uh, congratulations English, you did your best, but that's, that's not everything, like just, com- like, uh, I'll just, I wish someone would come and comfort me. Like, to me, it's kinda like, just put somebody, you know, put their arm around my shoulder. No, what Paul is saying is more than that. We serve a God of comfort, and the God of comfort is the kind of God who speaks words through his word, through the Bible, into us, that have multiple um, aspects to what they do. The first thing that they do is they have this power uh, to be able to change your attitude and your mood, right? So you're grumpy, you got this thing about you, something happened you didn't expect and now you've got the furrowed brow. God's word changes that mood if you choose to listen to it. The other thing that God's word does is not just change your mood, it helps you think about your current situation completely differently. It tells you stop looking at this thing, look up here. Oh, well, oh, well, that, oh, well, that does make a little bit of sense. Now I understand how these things that were meant for my bad are now meant for my good. But it doesn't stop there. The other thing that this word comfort does is it equips you to be able to learn how to look up in future situations. So things that have not even come your way that are afflictions, you will be better equipped moving forward to handle those things because of what God's word does in you. You follow? That's all wrapped up in that word comfort. We serve a God of comfort. Now, The second thing that he addresses is not just that we serve a God of comfort, but that this comfort that comes from God shows up as suffering and affliction increases. So this comfort's good news, but how do we get it? When does it show up? It has this way of popping up and showing up 
when afflictions and sufferings start increasing, when things are really, really bad, when things, when the pressure starts coming on and the stuff around us starts getting uncertain, as that stuff starts turning up the heat and getting really uncomfortable, guess what? God starts flooding the room with comfort. Oh man, I'm overwhelmed, that's okay. That, that feeling of being overwhelmed is going to come with a flood of God's comfort and it's found right here in his words. And the purpose of this, the reason why these two things are connected, the reason why when suffering increases and comfort increases, the reason why these two are connected is because in the heart of God, his desire is to always remind you that the only thing you ever really had was Jesus in the first place. Loss, suffering, affliction, the reason why God allows us to go through it is to remind us that the only thing you ever really had in this world was him. Because we like to hold on to these things in this world, like, ah, but I love this thing, because God gave me this thing. This is a good thing, look what he did, look what he blessed me with, this is good, why is it leaving me? Why, why can't I have that thing that you gave me, God? Why can't I have that good thing? Because I want to remind you what this is all about. Yeah, I, I, I gave you that, I blessed you with it, but I'm also gonna take it away because you started treating that thing like me, and I'm not that thing. I love you more than that thing and I will, take you, I will take better care of you than that thing. So in my love for you, I'm gonna take this thing away from you. You can't have it anymore because I love you too much. Loss, affliction, suffering from Paul's perspective is designed to increase comfort and then comfort comes from God and it's designed to remind us that the only thing we ever really had was not that good thing that Jesus gave us or that thing that you made with your own two hands, it's Jesus. You follow? So the third thing, if we're following his reasoning here, is that this comfort that comes from God and increases with suffering is good for our soul, but not just good for our soul, it's also good for other people's souls. The reason why God comforts you and, and holds you tight and doesn't let go and shifts your perspective and trains you to look differently in future situations is 100%. So you're ready to get through this situation, but also so you're equipped for the future situations, but also so you're, help, you're equipped to help other people get through those other situations. Because this is not just about you. There is way more at play here than just you. And God's desire is to not just make sure that you are whole and comforted, but that you are equipped in the, the kind of comfort that comes from heaven so that you can show that comfort to the rest of the world. That's what he's saying here. That as we are comforted, we are better equipped to comfort others, which is interesting because this starts putting a responsibility on us to see the connection that God has and desires for the local church which brings to the, the, the final thing that he's communicating in these first seven verses. This theology of comfort is designed to remind us that Christianity is based in a family. That everything that God does, suffering, hope, comfort, faith, love, is all designed to be experienced within the context of community. The idea that a Christian would not be a part of a local church is completely foreign to Paul. It's common to us, it's common for us to assume, well, uh, well, being a part of one church is good, being a part of 10 churches should be great, right? And the only way to do that is to just watch a bunch of churches and listen to a bunch of churches online 
then, then that should be good. Then I should be built up. But what we don't um, dissect is this idea that the more you feed yourself and never exercise, all you're doing is getting spiritually overweight. You're not becoming more effective for the kingdom. You're not actually changing. All you're doing is filling your body with a lot of knowledge. And what does knowledge do? It puffs up. It makes you think that you are a better Christian than you actually are because you are filling your mind with stuff and consuming a lot of content, but that content's never getting into your heart and working itself out through your fingers and your hands, and you're never actually doing anything with what you've learned. That's a major issue within the American church. The idea that, well, well, I could be a part of many. I don't have to say yes to one thing. I can say yes to everything. Well, there's, there's something to be said for saying yes to a lot of things. There's also something to be said to being committed to one thing. That's important because walking out our obedience requires us to say, I will submit to not just getting up and showing to a, up to a place on Sunday morning, but I will submit to the leadership structure that God has set over this specific local church, and I trust that in my submission, I will be able to grow and be fruitful in it. This is a good place, a good soil for me to plant my roots so that I can grow and become a mature Christian. And what that means is that I'm getting close enough to people in local community that when I start doing things that are stupid, somebody is close enough to me to see it and put their finger in my chest and say, hey, I love you, but this is wrong. You don't get that from online church. It'd be nice if it could, because I would love to just stay at home and preach in my pajamas. And I'm sure you'd love to sit there and listen in your pajamas. But at some point, if we're not getting to a place where we're submitting to being in the same room and living lives together and going over and having meals in each other's homes and getting plugged into small groups and living and sharing our lives together so that people know your name and know your kid's name and what you do for a job so that when you get a new job, we can rejoice. And when you lose your job, we can pray with you through it. You're not getting the fullness of what Paul sees as the benefits of the local church. You follow? I hope so. Let's continue. Verse 8. It says, for, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Most theologians think he's talking about that situation in Acts 19 where the riots in Ephesus got so bad. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Oh, that's interesting, because that's the same thing we talked about back in Genesis that gave Abraham the courage to want to go and follow God's um, uh, commandment to go and sacrifice his son. He's walking up there, and his son's like, hey, uh, dad, what are we doing? We're going to go make a sacrifice, and then we're both going to return. Well, that's, Abraham, that's not exactly what God said. God said to sacrifice your son, so how are both of you going? Why are you telling your son a lie? 
Why are you telling your son that you're both going to return? Because Abraham believed that God is the God who raises the dead. And this situation where Paul was brought to the point of feeling like he received a death sentence only made him rely on God more because he realized that God is the God who raises the dead. So I can be obedient unto the point of death because guess what? Death's not an issue in God's kingdom anymore. He's got power over it. If I hit that point, he'll just, re- he'll just reverse it and just raise me from the dead. I mean, he's got a track record. That's something he does. So when it gets that bad, I can have my hope in that. And if he doesn't do it in this specific situation, that's okay because I know he'll fulfill his word ultimately on the day when he returns and we're all going to be raised from the dead. So even though it may not be in this moment, I may die and lose my life and I may not experience that power of resurrection right now, but I know that it'll just a little bit, if I just wait a little bit longer, it's going to happen eventually because God always keeps his word. Amen? He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that we will de- he will deliver us again. You, must, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behave in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you have read and understand. And I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. So, in this situation, in in these uh, verses 8 through 14, Paul starts getting really specific about his afflictions, and he's talking probably about the situation from Acts 19 about the, uh, the riots in Ephesus. And what he's saying is that things got so bad that he started receiving, he felt like he was receiving a death sentence. But through that situation, what it did was it made him rely on God even more. And this reliance on God started building his faith that God wouldn't just deliver him now, but would also deliver him in the future. So this um, going through suffering and trials, like we talked about earlier, it gave Paul a different perspective on God's authority and power now, but also equipped him so that if this kind of thing happens again, hey, just revert back to the last time that I saved you. If you get stuck, God, what do, what do I do? What do I, um, please see uh, option three. You remember back in three when you learned that? Yeah, that's what I'm gonna do. Haven't changed, still the same character, still the same God. That's what I do then, that's what I do now. Which is interesting because this is the kind of thing that David did. In the, in the book of Psalms, he writes o- often about how he got really depressed and overwhelmed about being chased by Saul. I mean, that would do it to you, right? Like the, if, if the president of the United States had it out for you specifically and started paying for the military to start chasing you down so that you had to like live in the wilderness and hide in caves, that would be tough on you, right? It'd be difficult, It'd be hard to live your life. That's what David went through. And so he struggled with depression, and the way that he always got out of it was he would say, all right, let's go to the Word of God. Where in the history of God's people has he saved his people? Oh, here and here and here and here. Okay, now let's go to um, my life. Where in my life has God saved me specifically? He's done specific things. Oh, well, there's here, and there was that last time last September, and oh, when I was nine. Okay, so I've got a track record of things that God does for his people, um, a thing that God does for me specifically. Okay, well, if I have all this evidence of the stuff that God does, then why do I think that the situation I'm in right now is any different than that? Why can't I use this as evidence that I'm going to get through what I'm going through right now? 
That's how David got through it. This is how Paul got through it. This idea that what Paul is communicating is that when you hit those difficult seasons of affliction, that God has allowed, when he increases his comfort, what he does in that comfort is he's comforting you to remind you that I've done this before. I've walked people just like you through this situation. I've walked you through similar situations. I'm not gonna abandon you, so remember my character. I'm gonna get you through it because this is not the last time that tough things like this are gonna happen. They're gonna happen a year from now. Something's gonna happen, something's gonna come your way. You're not prepared for it, but I'm God, I know it's coming your way. So I, I just want you to know that I know and I'm preparing you for what's coming three years down the road. And when it shows up, you're gonna be like, oh, that's why I went through that thing, because this is way worse. And now I understand what I was supposed to learn back then, which is also important on why we should stop trying to avoid pain and try to av- stop trying to avoid the things that God is allowing us to go through. Because one of the things that God does is train you for future seasons. And if you hit the eject button every single time things get bad and you avoid pain and you refuse to have tough conversations, guess what you're not doing? Equipping yourself for something even more difficult down the road. This is about your growth and your maturity. And if you'll be ready for that, you have to go through this. That's what Paul is communicating in the fir- in 8 through 14. And what he's doing is he's inviting the church uh, in that second part that was like uh, 12 through 14, is he's inviting the church to participate. So what he's saying is, these are the things that I've learned. This is where I'm at. This is, this is my understanding of what God's doing. I want you to join in that. I want you to join me in prayer and I want you to join me in rejoicing. Join me in prayer so that as I hit these future things, I'll have my back covered because you're praying for me, but also join me in rejoicing because this is a testimony that God's building. And if you can see it happening in my life, then you'll be more adept to be able to see it in your own life. If you, uh, if you have eyes to see this thing happening over here in this guy's life, the moment it starts happening in your life, is like, oh man, this is what happened to Mark last year. How did he face it? Okay, well, that's right. How did Paul face these situations? Oh, well then I should probably go and do that because that's what the Bible told him or that's what he communicated to us in in the word of God. That's what God told him. Then it's probably good enough for me, right? If it was good enough for Paul, it's probably good enough for you. I know you don't make tents. You're not on, you know, your third missionary trip spreading the gospel to the entire world. But if it was good enough for him up here, it's probably good enough for us down here in Tallahassee. That's how we dissect this stuff. We don't think that we're the exception to the rule. Oh, my situation's way different. You know, if Paul was here and I could just kind of plead my case, he'd get where I'm coming from. No, he wouldn't. No, he wouldn't. A lot of these letters he wrote from prison. You sitting there? Mm Mm-mm. We like to glorify our situation like it's way worse or way better, but the truth of it is, is our life is not much different than the lives that these guys lived. In most situations, it was even, their life was even worse. So if the things that God is working out in their life applied to them, we can, we can uh, with some level of certainty, assume that they will also work in our life. So Paul is asking this church to join him in this understanding, that this testimony is exposing things inside of his life, but it's also exposing kind of like the culture clash within Rome, because what's not implied here, but will show up later in the chapters, is that if in Roman culture, the assumption for people of faith was that if things in your life are going bad, it's because God is mad at you. 
you, God must not be happy with you if things are going bad. If things are going good, God must be blessing you. If things are going bad, he must be angry. You did something wrong. Now, there are cases where if you sin, there are repercussions. Paul says in the first book of Corinthians, hey, there are many among you sick. You wonder why? It's because you're in sin. Well, that's interesting. So you're telling me that we can get sick because of sin? Not always, but sometimes. Yes, that happens. Paul tells us. There was a case in Acts where some people lied about how much money they made off of certain property. Guess what happened to them? They dropped dead in the church. Just because it doesn't happen as often as you think it does in your daily life doesn't mean it doesn't happen. These are things that happened after Jesus rose from the dead in what we would consider the New Testament times. So is every sickness that you get from the devil? No. Is every sickness that you get because you're in sin? No. Are some of them? Yes. So the point he's trying to make here is that he wants you to join in on this idea that not just what God is doing is good for him and good for them, but also kind of shattering this concept in Rome that God is not gonna curse you because he's mad at you. Bad things are not happening to you because God is upset. Sometimes God allows things that we would not want for us to come our way because they shape us in ways that we couldn't be shaped any other way. And I know that in your prayer time, you're starting to think, well, God, why would you, why would you allow this? Why, why this specific thing? Why this? This is, the, this is the most painful. Why this? God said, I'm not gonna show you why this. I'm gonna ask that you trust me and I'm gonna work through it. I didn't cause this. I didn't do this. But please trust that I'm working good through this and I'm gonna change you on the other side of it. You follow? So this this is all good, this is all very powerful, but how do we apply it? How does this get application in our life? Well, a couple things. First, by making a decision as Christians to to, um, not view every affliction or trial as something you need to avoid. The next thing that I think this would teach us is that um, by leaning into Jesus during affliction and experiencing the beauty of comfort, that is something that is good for our souls. That when comfort comes, we don't avoid it. Discomfort comes, we don't avoid it. We, sometimes we just allow that stuff to, to happen and we move through it because there is a comfort in the middle of it that we would never experience. There's a part of God's character that you're never gonna understand until you go through the valley of the shadow of death until you sit at the table with your enemies and you eat like a good boy and a good little girl. And you don't raise your finger and you don't start trying to get revenge while you're at the table. You just sit there in the midst of your enemies and you eat the meal that the Lord has prepared for you and you let him anoint your head while you're sitting there. There's no other way around it. Sometimes you just gotta do that. I think this teaches that by extending comfort to others, that is the way we walk out our Christianity and by regularly sharing our testimony, it excuse me, it invites other people to join in on. Now let's close this book by going to verse 15. I just want to read the rest of this. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. For I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. That's what I was talking about at the beginning. 
Now, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Did I make plans according to the flesh, ready to say, uh, yes, yes, uh, and I'll be there. And uh, no, 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 no. At the same time, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has, has not been yes and no for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim to you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and has also put his seal on us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy for you to stand firm in your faith. Now these original letters weren't broken up in chapters, so I'm gonna go a little bit into chapter two to kind of help us understand what's going, but just a little bit. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice, for I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be, so that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and out of anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So the church was apparently upset that Paul said he was gonna show up and then didn't do it. That's what this is about. Paul said, my original plan was to come to you twice and he didn't do that. And the church is like, well, maybe you're a little wishy-washy. Maybe Paul's the kind of guy who says one thing and does another. And it didn't help that a bunch of other super apostles, as Paul calls them later, these, he uses that term kind of uh, as a joke, people who think their credentials are better than Paul, come into town and and they're telling the church, you know, Paul doesn't really love you. And here's the proof. He told you he'd come and he wouldn't come. So what Paul is doing here is he's, he's trying to explain himself. And what he says is, I didn't come because my travel plans changed. I don't know if you heard or not, but there was a riot in Ephesus. Okay? It was on the news. Watch the news. So I couldn't make it, so that was one. But the other was that I, I, I didn't come to you because I didn't want to hurt your feelings. Newsflash, you guys haven't been a really solid church. You've kind of been wild. <coughs> the stuff that you've been approving and saying is okay, we're not okay with. That's why I wrote you that first letter. So we didn't come because I spared you because I don't want me showing up to be this father uh, with like a whip in his hand about to just bring some discipline. I love you too much for that. So that's why I wrote you the letter to bring you some correction. So he corrects their view. He didn't show up because he was wishy-washy and he changed his mind. He didn't choose to not come uh, because uh, uh, he's not a man of character. It was quite the opposite. He explained to them that he didn't come for these specific reasons, but in his explanation, he did in a very Paul way, he explained his value of the importance of saying yes if you call yourself a Christian. All right, now follow me here. 
Because it kind of gets confusing right around 18 to like 22. It seems like, okay, I'm following with you. I'm not the kind of guy who says like, yes, yes, and no, no. And then all of a sudden he starts talking about like the Holy Spirit. And he starts talking about amen. And I'm really sure where that is. What he does is he, same thing he did at the beginning of, the, of one. He uses an explanation to teach a principle. And what he's saying here is that Paul, he lived with an unbelievable amount of conviction about this thing um, called uh, this word yes. He's not the kind of guy who just says yes to something without fully thinking it through. He's not the kind of guy who has the character to just say, yeah, I'll do that. And then when something better comes up, he avoids it and says, well, I can't do it. He's not like a lot of young people today who say, you can count on me unless the beach is open and then I have a better opportunity to go something, do something over here. You follow me? That was oddly specific. I wasn't really trying to knock somebody, like we live close to the beach. If you want to go to the beach, that's fine. What I'm saying is that we live in a culture today that we all say yes to everything until something better comes along and then we do that instead. We're not people of our word. And Paul says, I don't appreciate allowing my character being called into question because I live my life with a high level of character when it comes to the things of God and when I say things like yes. And here's the reason why. Because God takes his yes very seriously. And if I am a child of God and he takes his yes very seriously, I also take my yes very seriously. And he he dissects this teaching, it's kind of a brief one, but he says, look, in Jesus, all promises from God are now a yes. What does that mean? That means um, God has fulfilled everything in this book through Jesus. Every promise to mankind was fulfilled in Jesus. And if God keeps his word and we follow God, then we should keep our word. Simple as that. If I follow Jesus and Jesus keeps his word, then I should keep my word. But it goes even deeper than that in this concept of yes. When Paul says yes, it, it rings even uh, stronger to him because in, like in Psalm 106, 48, it instructs God's people to say amen. Hey, God's people, one of the things we say is amen. We say it when we pray. Some of you say it while I'm teaching, which is popular in some churches and not popular in others. But as just a pastor, I don't mind it because the word amen is a Hebrew word that means yes. I'm on board with that. Yes is a Hebrew word that kind of means like, um, uh, that's what I wanted to say too. That's right. Come on. Amen. Yes. And so if I'm up here saying something that is true and bears witness with your soul, it is not out of line in this church and it's not going to knock me off my boots and for a loop for you to say, amen. And, and some of you have been trying on for size. I, I heard you. I heard you. A couple weeks ago, somebody said, that's good preaching. Well, I, hear, I heard you. That's, that's part of our faith. That's what we do. When you read through the Bible, there's some wild people. These are people who sing really loudly. These are people who raise their hands during worship. These are people who shout things like, amen. This is not reserved for some small, like charismatic portion of Christianity. This is what Christians do. And that's what Paul is saying. We're already getting it. Yes. Amen. The point is, is that in Paul's mind, yes is a big connection to what it means to be a Christian. We say it all the time. You finish every prayer with amen. We're instructed to say amen. That's something that we do, but it goes beyond that. 
Because even though yes is part of our vocabulary, yes is, is manifested as almost like a person in the sense that the Holy Spirit is God, but the Holy Spirit is God's yes in us. And Paul dissects this all through the New Testament, all of his letters, but the idea is that the Holy Spirit is a symbol. It's not, it, he is part of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is God, but he is a symbol from God that we are anointed. We have the Holy Spirit, meaning we are marked in a symbol way, uh, a symbolic way that we are not like every other humans walking the earth. We are different. We have the Holy Spirit. We're different. We're anointed. We're, we're set apart. We're mar- marked in a different way. But th- the Holy Spirit is also um, a seal that we are a part of God's kingdom. Back in the old days when people would send letters and they would mark them with like wax. And it would come and you're like, oh, well, this is, I know this is from this person because it's been sealed and it's got their mark on it. The Holy Spirit is a seal on our hearts that we've been claimed by God. But the other thing that the Holy Spirit is, is the Holy Spirit is almost like a down payment on a larger inheritance of eternal life. God says, when you come to me, I'm going to fill you with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you. The moment, the moment you get saved, every Christian gets the Holy Spirit. The moment you get saved. And when that happens, it's a symbolic gesture of saying, hey, that's just the down payment. There's more coming. We're going to raise you into a new life. And that, that little thing, that the Holy Spirit living on the inside of you, that's going to be manifested of the entire world. And it's not just going to be the Holy Spirit living in you. It's going to be the Holy Spirit ruling and reigning over the whole earth as Jesus as King. You follow? So when, when Paul dissects this, he's like, I don't really appreciate you guys calling my yes into question. And here's the reason why. Because from my perspective, I'm the kind of guy that, that follows God. And if God says yes and amen to something, I'm going to say yes and amen. And when if I say yes, I mean yes. I'm the kind of guy who shouts amen in the middle of a church service. I'm the guy who ends my prayers with amen. Yes, yes, yes. And I'm also the kind of guy who has the Holy Spirit living on the inside of me, which is God's yes to me. How do I know I'm his? Because he said yes in giving me part of him. That's what Paul is dissecting. So let's conclude with this. What are our takeaways from today? Well, first, affliction and suffering can be great teachers. Don't run from them, run to them. The second is that suffering and affliction, they teach us to look at Jesus and listen for his comfort. One of the best ways to read the Bible is when your flesh is being suppressed. One of the best ways to read the Bible is not just when your flesh is being suppressed, like through a fast or something like that, but when your flesh is being fed through fear and anger and you're overwhelmed and you're stressed out and the pressures of the world are crushing down on you and it's making you want to rage out. That is a great time to get into God's word. Another thing to to read about is others are a big part of God's plan because God is saving a people, not just you. He's saving an entire family. He's saving everybody. He's saving all of these people that call themselves Christians and you're one of them. And so this sharing of affliction and sharing and comfort is not just reserved for you. It's a sharing of all of us. And finally, I think that God's people should reflect God's character so that the world can see Jesus. Amen? We want the world to see Jesus, and we do that by allowing the work of God to work out in our life. Amen? All right, let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.